Reliability.com and today's webinar is all about PDFs, CDFs and other Fs. What the hell are they? And the reason this webinar, well, the reason why we're focusing on this topic is a lot of the time uh, many many of us think we know what uh, these 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 uh, probability, what these functions are, what these names mean, what these acronyms mean. Um, uh, but often we just don't have the time to really reinforce their true meanings and especially if you're a manager or your manager's not on top of some of these these concepts um uh, have, going back to basics and really understanding what these functions mean and what they do can be really really helpful even if we we think we're on top of uh on top of more, uh reliability engineering topics more broadly so what we're going to talk about today is a very first principles approach and hopefully a very um, basic and illuminating first principles approach to understanding what each function means and what it means for uh, us as reliability engineers, particularly when things fail. So before we go into too much detail, we're going to start at the very, very start. And that means looking at a, a uh, line, which in this case represents, say, some sort of magnitude, some sort of a random variable we want to learn about, something we're investigating, something that matters to us. And in the, in the line of reliability engineering, often this means uh, things like time to failure. Now, when something fails, it goes through a random process. Failure is a random process. Transistors have different diffusion speeds. Operators use, use our products, um, uh, use our products in different ways and uh, there are different build qualities, so on and so forth. So when we have a number of products fail, there's going to be some inherent variability. And each one of these dots or circles represents a single failure point. We can see that there is a certain amount of variability with our random variable, which is time to failure. But we can also see that values are more likely to occur in this region. Now, I'd also ask that while we're going through this very basic stuff, if you have any questions, please ask them. Ask the questions uh, through the Padlet or through the chat window. We'll do our best for those questions to get to me and we'll, ask, we'll answer them as we go because it's very important to understand some of these underlying topics. So here is our random variable. And in this case, we've got a bunch of these random variables. They're all the same thing. They're the time to failure for a particular product or a system. Now, we can see that they tend to occur in a certain region, but that's often not a really easy thing to visually represent. A thing that we are more comfortable with in terms of representing the nature of failure is this sort of thing here, a histogram. And then you can see that these bars sort of give us a rough indication of how often or how frequently our random variable is occurring in a certain region or space. But to be fair, this is a very ugly chart or ugly graph, you, you can see it's not smooth. You can see that it's, it's uh, it looks like a very toothy grin. Some columns are higher than others where you'd expect a more smooth result. So what can we do about this? What what do, what does this mean for us as, as people who are trying to understand the random nature of a process, in this case, failure? Well, uh, you might recall from my previous webinar on probability plotting, what we can do is we can uh, order these points from, in this case, from uh, one to 100, we want to have 100 data points here. And instead of looking at it as a histogram, we can essentially create this chart here with a vertical axis 
is the percentage of events that have already occurred. So what this means is that as we move from the left-hand side to the right-hand side of our chart, we, uh, we would expect, um, we, we see the vertical position of our points going up as it approaches 100%, because as we move further to the right, we are essentially passing more and more of our data points until we passed all of them or 100%. And this creates potentially this nice little curve here, which is shaded, uh, shaded in orange. But if we move on to the, to the next iteration of what this actually means, we can potentially manipulate these charts, manipulate these axes and have these weird scales here to create perhaps a straight line. And if the data file is a straight line, then we can say something about what this, what, uh, what the underlying probability nature is, uh, sorry, underlying nature of probability is, the nature of failure, how things are failing, what is causing, sorry, the characteristics of the random process of our system no longer um, working. Now, if we say this is a straight line, then we can, we can make some conclusions, but I'm not going to go down this any further because if you want to, under, want to understand how we can interpret data and uh, create or infer what a likely probability probability distribution is that explains our random process, please look at our probability plotting webinar to learn more. So let's assume that you're, you have gone through some sort of process to uh, understand or characterize the random nature of, the, of our random variable. And this allows you to create, for example, this shape here. And we'll go into what this shape means in the, in the near future. But this shape is an outcome of a description. It's an, it's a, it says a framework which describes the probability, the nature of probability, the, the likelihood of our failures occurring at a certain point in time or, so, or a certain point of usage. And you can see it has sort of a much smoother curve. And for, in this case, this is a Weibull, this is from a Weibull distribution with a shape parameter of 5.28. Again, go to our probability plotting webinar if you'd like to learn more about how we get this shape. But you can see it is more, it is a lot smoother. And hopefully visually, you can understand what it's trying to summarize. It is trying to tell us that there is a region of higher likelihood or higher probability of occurrence of failure when compared to other regions. And it has sort of this, it sort of has this uh, almost bell-like shape. So even though this is a random process, we can still, perhaps go through some data analysis process to create a shape like this, which means we think we can characterize the uncertainty. Um, and I haven't seen any questions come through yet. It might be a technical glitch, but if there are any questions, please uh, uh, please do not be shy in, a, in, a, in a putting them into the chat window or into the Padlet. So going back to our curve, this, this lovely smooth hill, you can see that it, it, it entails information. And the, point, the most important takeaway from this slot, from this chart is, random doesn't mean unpredictable. So we are interested in understanding the random nature of things. But when we, when we say random, so often our first inclination is to think there is no rhyme or reason to what is occurring, and that's not true. If we can understand the random process, we can then make really meaningful deductions, which help our business. So let's go back to this curve here. How can we use this curve to, to, for example, tell us when our warranty period should be 
if we want to make sure that that uh, no more five, no more than five percent or one in twenty of our products fail in the warranty period? This is a very common question that uh, manufacturers ask. What about if it's more if, if this is if, if this is a key part of a system or a plant, and uh, we want to know how many of these things we expect to fail in one year if we just simply run it to failure? Maybe it's a pump, maybe it's a valve, and for whatever reason we're happy with it running to failure. So we want, to, but we do want to know how many we expect to see fail every year. Well, what if your question is uh, revolves around, hey, I don't want it to fail, I don't want it to run to fail. When do I need to service it, or when do I need to swap it out? When do I need to overhaul it so that no more than one percent of my things fail um, before my next overhaul, my next replacement, my next lubrication, so on and so forth? Or perhaps an even more important question, is servicing even a thing for this product? Well, our probability curve that we just looked at can tell us what the answers are to all of these things. We just need to know how to interpret it and how to look for these, uh, uh, look for these answers. So here it is here. Here are the questions where we want to ask about uh, our product. And we've gone through some data analysis process to get this curve here, which describes the nature of our failure process, which is inherently random. And so let's take away all the noise, let's take away all the data points, let's take away all the histograms, and we're just left with this curve here, which summarizes the relative likelihood of failure. We call this curve the probability density function, or the PDF, which gives the relative probability that a continuous random variable is equal to a specific value. And the higher the value, the more likely that uh, the random variable is, go is going to, so more likely it is so that that random variable will occur at that point. So let's look at an example PDF. <coughs> you can see we have the horizontal axis, our random variable, which in this case is T, and this curve here summarizes the random nature of whatever process defines our random variable. And you can see here that if we look at this curve, it seems to me that most values, most random variable values are going to occur around two. It seems to be the highest, the point where the PDF curve has the highest value. We can also see that this curve uh, doesn't extend below zero. So there's no chance of this random variable having a negative value. But there's also another characteristic of this PDF curve. And, the PD, and our PDF curve must be a curve where the area under it is equal to one. Why is that? Because we need to use this, we need to use this property to answer all the questions we just we just asked ourselves, and I'll show you why. So, for example, let's just say we want to understand what the probability of our random variable having a value between two and six is. Well, this area under our curve, which is the area within the interval two to six, will tell us what that what that probability is. Now, the reason why the area under the entire curve has to be one is because essentially that means there is a 100% chance of our random variable having some value. So any area under the curve, which is based within a, within a specific interval, represents a smaller value than our 100% total. It might be 50%, might be 60%, but this area can then, can, then, can then give us meaningful answers for questions like, what is the probability that our random variable value will be somewhere between two and six? And another key key observation from this, uh, this little uh, uh, property is that our probability density function curve 
has no direct meaning. What does that mean? Well, we go back to our PDF here and we got this interval which shows that uh, the, the probability of our variable being between two and six. Well, let's look at what happens when we collapse that, variable, that interval. Instead of want, wanting to know what the probability of a random variable being between two and six is, what does it look like if it's between two and five? What about two and four? What about two and three? What happens if it collapses all the way to two, which should tell us the probability that our random variable has a value which is exactly or precisely two. Well, the area under the curve here is zero because it's bounded on the left by two, it's bounded on the right by two. So because this is a continuous random variable, we can't ever say that there is a probability, that there is a finite probability of our random variable having any specific value. So the height of the curve is somewhat meaningless. The probability that a continuous random variable can take on a specific value is zero. We must deal with instead intervals. Intervals. Now, intervals are problematic, and we're about to see, about to show what, show you why. Because intervals mean we need to worry about the area, and the area itself can be difficult to calculate. So what we can do is create another curve, another curve which helps us answer questions based on the area. And as you see here in this little animation, as we move from left to right, as we start from zero and move up to six, the curve on the bottom gives us the area under the curve on the top. And we'll just go through that one again. If you, if you miss it the first time, you'll see that as we move from the left to the right, starting at zero, the area under the our PDF curve increases, and the curve at the bottom tells us how the magnitude of that area as we move from left to right until we get to, in this case, a value of six. So we, if we want to understand the probability that our random variable occurs before six, we simply take that height of the, of the bottom curve, which in this case is 0.9693, which tells us that there is a 96.93% chance that our random variable occurs before six. Now, if our random variable is timed to failure, which this means that there's a 96.93% chance that our system fails before six hours. Now, this is how we interpret the PDF curve uh, in a way that gives us meaningful statistics. Now, I can see that there's a question, an audience question coming up. Uh, can Minitab give those values neatly and easily? The answer is obviously yes, as I think, Fred, that was your response. Um, once you know what the PDF is, uh, you, can, you can generate all these all the answers, all, all the uh, curves we're about to go through really easily. The trick here is understanding what the right PDF curve is. Again, that's almost a subject of another lesson where you're trying to work out if you've got data, for example, um, uh, how you match a, a, a given probability distribution to that data to answer questions like this. And the next question is, what is the difference between probability and likelihood in the PDF? I hear likelihood a lot in the context of PDF. So that's a really good question. So for example, you there's a, there's a branch of analysis out there which relies on what we call maximum likelihood estimates. Now, when we typically, likelihood and probability are technically synonymous. The problem is, is that uh, we, when we're talking about a probability density function, 
we are talking about the likelihood of a random variable uh, occurring. What we want, what we typically talk about when it's likelihood is we're talking about the probability that an underlying parameter is true. So for example, if I've observed evidence where I take five products and two of them have failed, so I've got a, a batch and I sample five of them, two of them are terrible, five are functional, I can use some statistics to, in the concept of likelihood to work out what the likelihood of the underlying parameter uh, is, which is in this case is the, uh, the reliability of each product, the probability that each product is functional or not. Now, in statistics, there's a slight difference between the two. We typically, uh, and, and to make that distinction clear, we often use a term probability to describe the, the, the frequency or occurrence or likelihood of us observing the output of a random process, which might be the number of failed products in a random sample of five. And we often use a term likelihood to, to explain the probability of a particular parameter for that random process being true, which would be on-demand reliability. So that's where the difference lies. And there's a couple of other statistical an anomalies which make those two terms different. But as a rule of thumb, probability and probability density describes uh, the likelihood of seeing an outcome of random process, whereas likelihood describes our, I suppose, confidence that a particular parameter value is is, uh, is a certain parameter is a certain value. Hope that helps. And obviously, if it doesn't doesn't help to the extent it needs to, please for, uh, please send a, uh, a follow-on question. Okay, so here we have our two curves. Uh, the top curve is our PDF curve. The bottom curve gives us the area under that curve up until six. But let's just say you might remember we were we uh, we looked at the area under a curve couple of slides ago, between the values of two and six, how do we find the probability that a random variable lies between two and six? Well, what we can do is collapse the interval again, which means that our little shaded area on the left-hand side moves across. And, and the corresponding value on our area curve at the bottom also goes up. Now you see that at two, our area curve at the bottom has a value of 0.3824. At six, that value is 0.9693. So the difference between those two values gives us the probability that a random variable is between those two uh, boundaries of our interval. So the probability that our random variable is between two and six is somewhat difficult to, uh, to evaluate directly when we look at a PDF, but if we have a CDF or our area curve in the bottom, got ahead of myself in terms of naming that curve, we can relatively easily work out what the, the, the area values are at the extremes of our intervals, take the difference, and that answers our question. So the PDF curve gives the slope of the area curve and the area curve gives the area under the PDF curve. So whenever you have a PDF curve, you obviously have also defined the area curve at the same time. You need some mathematical trickery to get from one to the other, um, but, for every PDF curve, you obviously have a corresponding area curve. Now this area curve tells us the probability that the random variable value is less than the value on the horizontal axis. Or in reliability engineering, the probability that our product or system has failed. And as you can see, this curve keeps going up until it approaches one because eventually everything fails. 
So obviously this curve must keep going up, keep going up, keep going up, approaching but never quite equaling one. We call this curve our cumulative distribution function or the function that gives the curve the cumulative distribution function because it gives a probability that a random variable is less than or equal to a specific value. So we have covered so far the PDF curve and the CDF curve for a random variable. So, so how does this help us? Well, let's go back to our random variable. In this case, time to fail, we have a bunch of data in this case, or this is some sort of test or field data, what have you. We know that we can, see, or visually we can see that values are more likely to occur in that region there. If we put a histogram uh, up, we can see that uh, the histogram supports that uh, idea that uh, the values are more likely to occur in that sort of region where all those all those data points uh, double up, but it's still quite a uh, uneven, uh, uneven trend in the heights of those uh, those histogram uh, columns but if we put it to uh, if we plot this on those axes we looked at previously knowing what we now know we the vertical axis becomes the estimate of a cumulative distribution function and you can see that straight away the line is a lot smoother the histogram was all jagged but as soon as we move from the uh, pdf space in terms of raw data into the cdf space our data becomes a lot smoother, which is always, always a, a, a thing we need to exploit when we're doing data analysis. And so from our data analysis, from our probability plotting webinar, we can use this data to get an estimate of the true underlying cumulative, cumulative distribution function, which is this curve here. And this is what, if we assume a wide probability distribution, uh, this is the curve that data analysis gives us. This is our CDF curve that some analysis, uh, some data analysis has spat out at the other end. So let's see how we use this curve. Now, remember those questions we asked at the start. I might be interested in, in understanding the warranty period of my product. So if I define the warranty period as a period in time where I want no more than 5% of my product to have failed, when we go on the vertical axis here, find where 5% is, go straight across to our cumulative distribution function. And this is our warranty period. So our CDF can tell us when we should have a warranty period if we know roughly how many things we can tolerate failing in that warranty period. And you obviously should know that if you, um, if you, your finance team should be able to understand the likely cost of, um, of warranty action and obviously work out how many you can tolerate before you start uh, eating into your profits. So this is our warranty period. Perhaps we're interested in making sure uh, we're, in, we're an asset management framework. Uh, we only we want to make sure that we have uh, when we we actually can't tolerate five percent of failure. Warranty is not a thing. We want to swap out our our part, our component, our pump, our valve uh, before it likely fails. And let's just say we can tolerate one percent of our valves or pumps failing before we do uh, uh, conduct our, our preventive maintenance uh, or servicing action. But then we find well. That 1% is what we can tolerate, 1% on the vertical axis, put that across to our CDF curve. And this means that we now have what could be our servicing interval. So once you go through the process of taking your data, understanding how to create a PDF and a CDF, and you get your CDF, you can answer really useful questions like this. When should my warranty period be? How often should I service it? Um, so the question I would ask uh, to the audience here is, those involved in warranty periods or servicing or servicing a plant, has this approach 
permeated uh, your thinking, your thought process, or is it something that uh, do, do you guys, is, is there a prevalence of, let's just say, MTBF, MTTF dominating analyses like this? Does the MTBF or MTTF tend to dominate, at least in your experience, uh, questions like when should I service and what our warranty period should be? So I'll just leave that hanging for a little bit and see if I can get the questions coming through. I guess, Fred, you're retweeting them as they do come through. Just give another couple of minutes. Uh, I appreciate that not everyone uh, might be involved in the scenario where you have to concern yourself with warranty periods or servicing intervals. Okay, no worries. So I haven't seen too many questions come through. All right, so we'll move on. So let's just say you uh, you are in, the, in in an industry where you're you're worried about uh, servicing intervals or warranty periods or things like that. You might remember the other question we asked, which was all about something else about total number of fires we expect to see. So let's just zoom back out of our cumulative distribution function. We put our data points back on. We'll even, uh, we'll even change our perspective from the CDF to back to the PDF. But I've kept or highlighted the uh, two points we just looked at, which was the point at which where we want to have a, a warranty period um, uh, where we expect no more than 5% of our things to have failed or a servicing interval where we expect to have no more than 1% of our things to have failed. And you can see that when you compare it to our PDF curve, it's very much, it's on the left-hand side. It's, it's at the left-hand tail. Now, a question that's just come through is how, what sample is required for us to have a meaningful PDF and CDF? And that is, uh, as, as Fred said, is a very good question. Now, I'm going to not answer that completely here because that was a topic of a previous webinar we did probability plotting. Um, and the, the short answer is there is no binary answer. With reliability engineering, we need to deal with confidence bounds. So for everything we're talking about here, a PDF and CDF, we're talking as if we know exactly what it is. Um, and that's okay for this conceptual discussion. But in practice, we need to not only worry about what we think the CDF curve is or the PDF curve is, we need to concern ourselves with what the PDF curve or CDF curve is likely to be in a very conservative, conservative sense. So the, the, the approach that we talk about here doesn't change one bit. But instead of using our best guess for our CDF or PDF curve, we do the same process with our conservative estimate of the CDF curve or what we call the uh, upper confidence bound if it's about failure or lower confidence bound if it's about reliability. And then you get your own similar curve, but it's, it's essentially the curve which represents your risk profile, the, 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 uh, the extent to which you're happy that you are wrong, for lack of a better term. Now, the in terms of how to estimate the confidence in the PDF and CDF, again, I can't cover it in this one, in this, this lesson. It might be, uh, I'd actually ask people to have a look at the webinar regarding probability plotting. And if you think that doesn't cover it enough, because we do talk about it at the end in regards to software confidence bounds, can you please let us know? And maybe that's a topic for another webinar. Um, another question is, so warranty goals better present as max X percent of phase by time T. Is that right? So I, can, I sense you're borrowing terminology from uh, Mill Handbooks as it re relates to uh, maintainability. And it's not a bad, it's not, not a bad concept that the percentage 
time by which you expect 95% of your maintenance actions to, to have been completed. Yes, the max X percent of, of failures by time T is, um, in this case, was 5%. If that met our business, uh, our business goals, then yes, what you're saying is, is exactly true. The max 5% uh, time where you define that metric as the time by which you expect no more than 5% of your failures to have occurred. And again, you can put confidence bounds on that. Now, another question is interesting point on the service interval as determined by life data. This could be used to validate manufacturer recommended service intervals versus actual life determined service intervals. I would imagine manufacturer intervals are conservative. I'm not going to answer that question right now. I will later on with a slide. So just hold that thought. Now, that next question is if you know the distribution type, it helps. If you don't even know that with little points, it is very hard to predict. And I agree with that. Again, I'll ask you to have a look at our probability plotting um, uh, lesson as well. That helps you choose the right distribution. But I will say that if you just do a little bit of investigation, you can learn a lot about what the typical probability distributions are going to be for your type of failure. So for example, if you're concerned about uh, rubber wearing out on a tire or similar, uh, similar problem, we are pretty comfortable for various good, for a number of good reasons that the normal distribution, that the, the prototypical bell curve is a great way of describing the variability of how quickly it takes for uh, rubber or synthetic materials to wear away. We also know the log normal distribution is really good for things like fatigue because the log normal distribution describes multiple, multiplicative processes. So as your fatigue cracks grow, uh, the stress concentration increases. So as a crack gets bigger, the rate at which it grows gets bigger as well. So the log normal distribution is really, really good. So I take your point. If you don't have many data points, it is, it is a struggle to work out what the right curve is. But you can do a little bit more investigation regarding the dominant failure mechanism to, uh, to uh, at least point in the right di direction. Now, the, the audience question, as you can see, the CDF is not 100% fit of the actual data. That means there is uncertain uncertainty to the warranty that is calculated to 5%. How do you broadcast this uncertainty here? And you're 100% right. This is the topic for a different lecture. And I think because of the number of questions being asked about this, Fred, we might have to dedicate a specific uh, lesson to uh, confidence intervals. Again, I can see Fred's put the link to the one on probability plotting where we talk about going through data analysis and putting confidence bounds on our curves at the end. Um, and I would ask those of you who are genuinely interested to have a look at that webinar, that reported webinar, if there's something you'd like us to explore further or dedicate an entire webinar to, please let us know and it will be in the works very, very quickly. So let's go back to our um, let's go back to our presentation as I see I have exhausted all the questions so far. So just describing the image you can see on the screen. We have the PDF that we have gone through some sort of process to fit to our data the way one of you have suggested. Um, you can see on the left-hand side, uh, the point estimates of where our servicing interval should be and our warranty period should be, depending on the industry, depending on what it is you're, you're interested in, in finding out. So what's next? Well, let's have a look at what this means with respect to the mean. So on the screen now, you can see where the mean is. The mean of this, uh, of this, of this random variable, as and we can use the probability density function to calculate this. And we'll talk about what the mean actually, how we get there in a minute. But the point I'm trying to make here is that you can see that our, our warranty period, our servicing interval is a lot, lot shorter than our mean time to failure. 
what happens if we simply make the servicing interval equal to our mean time to failure? Well, we go back to our PDF and our PDF curve will answer that question for us. We know that the area under the PDF curve between an interval gives us the probability of failure. So if I just focus on the MTTF, this area here, which equates to 48% of the uh, possible random variable values, that gives us a probability that our thing will fail before the mean time to failure. So never ever equate the mean time to failure with things like warranty reliability and, uh, and servicing intervals. So what does this mean? Well, in short, there is a mathematical equation we can put up on the screen, but I'm not gonna do that. Um, I know you, you, you probably hate me enough if you're going through all this nonsense. I'm not going to try and I'll lose any more friends than I've already lost. So here's our example probability density function. Now, if we take our PDF curve and we turn it into a shape and it sits in the air, let's now actually give this shape some mass, as in it actually becomes a three-dimensional shape. And if I can balance this mass on this point here, then this becomes our mean, not becomes our mean, this tells us where the mean is. So the mean is, a, is the point at which if uh, our PDF curve, if it was a shape, would uh, balance perfectly. Now you can see it's not right in the middle. What does the middle mean? Well, some people, they think the middle is a, most, is a, is a point where it's, the random variable value is most likely to occur. So if we go to our PDF curve and find the highest value, this becomes our, what we call a mode. So the mode is the value at which that is most likely to occur. The mean is the value where essentially on the balance of probabilities, quite literally, uh, you could balance your PDF such that it wouldn't fall one way or the other. And there's another way we can also work out sort of the typical value and that is we split it in two. So if we cut our PDF curve into, so there's 50% on one side and 50% on the other, this becomes what we call the median. And so these are three common measures of central, central tendency. What does that mean? We often want to know some typical indicative value which describes the likely values of our, of our random variable. We want to know what the average height of human beings are. We want to know what the average uh, cost of a certain thing in a shop is, so on and so forth. And so we often can uh, deal with well, these measures of central tendency and each have their strength and each have their weaknesses. In real estate, we often use the median because that tends to limit the extent to which a very expensive multi-million dollar house in a single suburb or subdivision drives up that measure of central tendency. If you make if the median doesn't sort of uh, automatically uh, tip one way or another, if the most expensive house becomes twice as expensive. So we often use that measure in real estate because we don't want one house turning into a $20 million mansion to artificially skew the perceived values of all the other houses. So this is why we have a different number of measures of central tendency. They all have their own strengths and weaknesses. And technically, these are all forms of the average. The mean is what we often refer to as the average though. But the mean time to failure in this case helps us understand how many failures we expect to see in, in, a, in a year. Now, I see an audience question about the median. I, I, I just see the, the word median. Um, I hope that's uh, reaffirming what we're talking about uh, in, in this particular context. But if there's a, if, if that's a, if there's a typo there, or if there's a more detailed question coming, please, please let me know. But if we're interested in understanding 
if we have 10 valves in a plant and they have a, they have a three month mean time to failure, then we would expect, if we're gonna run each valve to failure, we'd expect uh, the valve ha would have to be replaced on average four times a year. The mean time to failure or mean time between failure is three months and we have 10 of them. And we expect that we go through 40 valves in one year. So the mean helps us understand things like uh, how, many, how many parts we need uh, to maintain our plant. But that is not a reliability engineering question. That is a logistics engineering question. If we're in, if we're in the business of reliability, we want to know things that can help us improve the performance of our, of our product, an MTDF and MTTF card. So what is left? What have we, haven't we talked about? We talked about the PDF curve, we talked about the CDF curve, and we talked about some measures of the central tendency and hopefully that visual with the uh, PDF curve helped you understand what those central measures of central tendency are. So what else is, is left? Well, if we go back to our PDF curve here, and we know that uh, the area under that curve gives us what, what we call the cumulative distribution function, the CDF. And so all, as, soon as, if we, as soon as we have one curve, we can automatically define the other. Then if we just focus on the CDF itself, we can plot this other curve here, which is simply one minus the CDF. Because it's one minus the CDF, it's obviously the same shape, it's just upside down. The CDF curve starts at zero, which makes sense. Your product should, none of your products should have failed, dead on arrival um, systems or products aside. None of your products should have failed uh, at time zero. And as you keep using your product, using your device, using your system, the probability of failure increases. Well, if you flip that on its so upside down, we could say that the probability that our system or product is working at time zero should also be one. So instead of looking at the probability of failure, we're looking at the probability of success or function, which means this red line here becomes our reliability function. And to be honest, we're not going to be spending too much more time on that, what the reliability function is in a, in a statistical and mathematically derived sense. Why? Because it is so similar conceptually and philosophically to the CDF, that if you know how to get the CDF from the PDF curve, then essentially you know, what the, you know what the reliability curve is also. Where the CDF curve gives you the area under, the, to the, uh, under your PDF, if you look at it to the left-hand left -hand side of that point in question, the reliability curve looks at the area on the other, other side. One's all, essentially one is, uh, one is all about the probability of failure, the other one's all about the probability of success. The other question is uh, seen coming up is, does the area under a CDF curve tell us anything? Which is a really, really good question. From a, uh, the direct answer is no. The area under the CDF curve does not tell us uh, anything, anything meaningful. The area under the reliability curve can be used to help calculate what the mean value is from a very mathematical sense. You can use that area to calculate where that balance point is where your PDF curve would perfectly balance on top of it. But in a very direct sense, does it have an actual probabilistic meaning or physical meaning? Uh, no. Um, in fact, the area under the CDF curve, if you extend it all the way to infinity, will be also infinite because as it approaches one, you essentially have a curve which is at one as, uh, as far as, as, far as you, can, you can possibly go. So it's a really good question. It's the area under the reliability curve we are sometimes interested in if we want to calculate the MTT, MTBF or M, M, uh, MTBF. <coughs> Excuse me. Right, so 
that means we have covered the PDF, the CDF, the reliability curve, and some measures of central tendency, the mean, the median, and mode. Is there anything else? Well, there is one more thing we need to concern ourselves with. So here's our probability density function curve, and here is our reliability function curve as well. Now, just uh, as, uh, in the same way that every PDF curve has uh, defines a CDF curve, every PDF curve must also define a reliability curve. So if you have one, you can automatically define the other. Now, if we divide one by the other, we can get what we call a hazard rate, the rate at which a functioning system fails with respect to usage. We use the Greek letter lambda to give us this, uh, uh, this value. So lambda is equal to our PDF value divided by our reliability value. And the reason we're interested in this curve, this blue line here, is because this tells us the instantaneous likelihood that a system or product that is currently working will fail now. So I'd ask this question um, uh, broadly. We can see this blue line starting at zero and it seems to be increasing all the, all the way up to the right-hand side. What does that tell us about the nature of failure for this particular product? Can we learn anything about it? I'll just leave that question out there, see if we get any responses. So we've lost audio. It's not good. I've just turned on subtitles at this stage. Hopefully you can recognize my accent um, and you can see the words coming at the bottom of the screen. So we had one response. We had that this has an increasing failure rate, increasing hazard rate, which is absolutely correct. Which typically, well, not typically, which means that our system is wearing out. So you remember the question, one of the questions we asked at the start of the lesson is, is, um, is preventive maintenance even a thing for our for our product and for preventive maintenance to be a thing it needs to be it needs to occur on things that wear out if things don't wear out there's no need to replace them the other so the, that answers the question can we can we invoke preventive maintenance for this particular uh, product and the answer is yes there's an observation that hazard rate seems quite linear uh, someone else can hear me quite well um, so I might be able to turn the uh, turn the subtitles off So the changing hazard rate will, will tell you improving or degrading reliability over time. I understand what you're trying to say. That's a really good observation. Just, just be aware that reliability will always degrade over time. You just, I, I, I understand what you're trying to say, and I, and I agree with you if, you if you're talking about the nature, in reli the nature of how reliability degrades over time. It will give you some, some meaningful information in that regard. So if we go back to this hazard rate curve, the most famous hazard rate curve of all is what we call the bathtub curve. And this is a, a uh, and this curve here is all about the, the instantaneous likelihood that something that is working will fail now. And this is largely a conceptual curve. It's, it's meant to, to, uh, to describe different, uh, different failure mechanisms and how they work. So we start at region one. Uh, we have a high likelihood of failure during wear in. 
And we also have an increasingly high likelihood of failure during wear out. So what does wear in mean? That typically means we have manufacturing defects which are removed. So in essence, we have a, a subset of products which have issues when they, when they leave the, the factory floor. And when you repair them, you actually take that issue away and the whole population of things becomes more reliable. So you see the failure rate or hazard rate going down. And um, sometimes we can also make repairs better than new or old, which means that we might have a product um, that's introduced into a new server, into a new, new environment, but we didn't realize how it was going to interact with the environment until it got there. And so we not only do we fix the first failures, we replace that part with a more robust part, a part that can handle more humidity, higher temperatures, things like that. And over on this side, this typically talks about failure mechanisms where we accumulate damage. We're talking about wear out, creep, fatigue, diffusion, corrosion, all those sorts of things where you'd expect the product or system to be, um, uh, to, to, be uh, uh, to be getting worse as it goes from day to day. I can see someone still has lost audio, so I'm just gonna leave the subtitles on for the rest of the webinar just to, just to accommodate uh, potential bandwidth issues. All right, but this bathtub curve only applies to electric, electromechanical systems. This bathtub curve, this purple line here, is the software bathtub curve, which again is completely, uh, com completely philosophical or, or, or stereotypical because it's trying to illustrate certain characteristics of failure. And in software, uh, we often always start with a high failure rate and bugs get removed, but then we have major upgrades. We have service packs, which sub substantially change our software code. And we introduce a ton more bugs, which take a little while to, uh, to uh, be ironed out. And if we have too many major upgrades, the, the the overall hazard rate or failure rate will keep increasing until we, we reach obsolescence, particularly uh, if we have more complex software uh, systems. But if the software is quite simple, often we can reduce that failure rate to a very, very low figure. So you can clearly see that not all bathtub curves look like a bathtub. And in, uh, here is the human bathtub curve. And you can see that that is a very uncomfortable bathtub if, uh, uh, if you do want to try and cleanse yourself in it. On the left-hand side, we have quite literally infant mortality. That's where the term comes from. On the right-hand side, we, you can see that's where we start to wear out. So as soon as we start having children, we start damaging ourselves on a daily basis. And parents can obviously understand exactly what that means. Um, we are, you can see we have a region of relatively constant hazard rate over here where we start to enter the workforce and we aren't accumulating damage that our children impose on us on a daily basis. And you can see that uh, on the left-hand side, uh, perhaps uh, over here, you can see that we have a region where there's very, very low failure rates where we're in school, where we're protected, we're not exposed to workplace hazards, so on and so forth. So this all makes sense. And this helps us understand if we're wanting to uh, treat the health of, uh, health of human beings, what we should do and where we should, we should target our efforts. And this, uh, you can see in this, this curve here, which is logarithmic on the vertical axis, uh, this exponential increase in the hazard rate or death rate of human beings was first noticed by, uh, by a man in the 1800s and it has since become known as the Gompertz Law of Mortality. Now, a question was asked um, about uh, servicing intervals and can this help us understand where we should conduct servicing intervals? And 
part of that question was all about, I might even scroll up to make sure I get the wording correct or the, the, the sentiment correct, uh, where we're talking about validating manufacturer recommended service intervals versus actual life determined service intervals. Well, here's an example where I, I uh, where I looked at the nature of failure of uh, old, old vehicles in, in the Australian Army. This is, this is the same example we had in our webinar, um, webinar regarding probability plotting. Because it's so uh, it's such a good news story and, and so topical, I often include it. And you can see here, this is a hazard rate for two different, um, two different uh, populations or fleets of these vehicles, where zero on the, on the horizontal axis represents the servicing point. So as we go from left to right, we're looking at the hazard rate or, fa uh, or failure rate as these vehicles keep driving after the most recent service, uh, servicing action. So you can see that in this case, our hazard rate is going down as you expect. And this is because every time you touch something that was previously working, which every preventive maintenance action is, there is a finite chance of you doing something bad to it. So you see the failure hazard rate always go up and decrease in this very consistent trend across industries. But what was happening here is because we could understand the nature of failure, we could work out that we were servicing way too often. And these vehicles were very old at the time. They were introduced into service when we only had mineral oils, for example, not synthetic oils, which last a lot longer, but we're still servicing based on the manufacturer recommendation in a in a almost obsolescent technological era. And we were able to, um, by, by understanding the hazard rate, by understanding the PDF and CDF and everything else, we were able to work out that if we did less maintenance, we improved reliability by 23%. And in fact, we could have, we could have kept going. Um, uh, the, the statistics bore that out, but there's a, there a fair bit of conservative um, bias in the decision makers, and that they only want to increase the servicing interval by a little bit. But by the same token, we increased reliability by 23%. So that's a, in terms of the phase we're experiencing, we dropped uh, roughly uh, 20, we increased reliability by 23%, so about a quarter, uh, which meant that we had uh, we had four fifths of the phase we previously had. So we dropped the experience, the, the number of phases we're experiencing by about 20%. Now I'd argue that any industry would be only too happy to, to have that sort of uh, return on investment. And the investment in this case was absolutely nothing because all we had to do was do less servicing. In fact, we had we, we, we made money from doing less servicing in addition to uh, uh, to bearing the, to reaping the benefits of, of more reliable, high reliability. So it's gonna go back to a question, a couple of questions here. So what do you mean constant failure rate in the bathtub curve? So that's a really good question. A hazard rate or a constant, constant failure rate, constant hazard rate means that your system is not getting older and not getting younger. So if, it, if, it, if the instantaneous uh, failure probability that doesn't change, it means that your product is as likely to fail in the next hour as when you get it out of the box as it is, uh, as, as like, as it is likely to fail in that same hour, a hundred years later, if it's still working. So we call this the ageless uh, characteristic of the constant hazard rate. So if things aren't failing because of wear out or maintenance issues or manufacturing defects, you see a constant hazard rate. And that typically means things like external events, like voltage spikes going through PCBs, like um, uh, accidental damage, lightning strike tornadoes, weather phenomena. You see those, the failures caused by those sort of external shocks 
uh, as the ones that drive the failures that give us our constant hazard rate. That's what that means in our bathtub curve. Another question is, shouldn't the software upgrades create a downward trend just after implementation, not an upward trend? Uh, that's a good point. Uh, in terms of it, they tend to fix bugs. Yes, I agree with that, which is why we see the whole uh, the, the hazard rate of our software bathtub curve going uh, going down at the start. So every time we we issue a new patch, a little patch which, fix, which fixes a coding area area coding error, it makes the reliability of our software much uh, improves the reliability of our software. I should say it. When we have a service pack released, a major upgrade, we, we are introdu introducing a ton of new functionality. It's almost like you're reissuing the software from scratch. So yes, those little patches which, which, uh, which uh, repair bugs, which you start seeing from day one, they, they make our curve go down. But when we have a, a major upgrade, is what we call it, we see our software uh, hazard rate go through the roof because we've got this bunch of new code doing new stuff, which has its own bugs, and then it starts going down thereafter. So hopefully that that, um, uh, that answers that question. The bump at 20 years is probably due to alcohol driving and over courage. Uh, that's, I know you're referring to the human bathtub curve where you saw the uh, hazard rate go from not very much to a lot at the age of 16 to, to, to 20. Yeah, I agree with you, exactly. It's a, it's a, it, it's, it, at least due in part to those sorts of things. But it's also due to the fact that uh, we're exposed to more hazards, uh, more broadly school, uh, kids, children going to school, it's very protected. They're not on a factory floor. They're not being uh, exposed to, they're not driving to work. They're not on public transport. So there are a lot of, let's say, less, um, less negligent causes or reasons for the hazard rate to increase, but yeah, alcohol and, and other sorts of things and uh, overconfidence in one skills obviously starts increasing the hazard rate at that point in time. So let's see the question. By doing less preventive maintenance, reliability improved by 23%. Can you please explain how? So I'll go back to that slide in particular. So here is the hazard rate after um, that, should, that, uh, that, uh, that we determined through analysis regarding what we call the rate of occurrence of failure after servicing. So it turns out that on average, these vehicles are being serviced around about this mark here, on average about a thousand kilometers, which for a military, that might seem like a very low figure, but for military vehicles, where you're often traveling very slowly or cross country and things like that, um, that's not unheard of. Um, but we were servicing right about here. So these two fleets of vehicles. So all we had to do was push the servicing out to the right and we started to explore this, but the, uh, the hazard rate as it continued to decrease because all we were seeing were maintenance induced failures. All these things here, we were able to demonstrate that all these failures over here, because they are decreasing, we didn't need to do a root cause analysis. We knew that they were maintenance induced failures. These are things that were occurring because the, 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 the tradesmen uh, we're making tiny errors, not negligent errors most of the time. It's just every time you touch something that was working, there's a finite chance of you doing something to it to make it not work. So because we were driving these these vehicles in a way which with uh, with very trained operators, we were up, upgrading oils and lubricants and things like that. Our servicing interval, which used to be here, became very inappropriate. So every time we would, um, so every time we we, we were serviced, 
we would essentially, uh, our vehicle would travel down this hazard rate curve, get to here, and then go back to the start. What we wanted to do was have our, ideally have our, uh, not service it until we needed to. We wanted, oops, we wanted our, we wanted our, our vehicle, now I'm having issues with the, my pen. We wanted our vehicle to, uh, it's not letting me do it now for some reason. So what we wanted to allow our vehicle to keep going down its hazard rate curve, keep going, keep going ideally until it started to go up. And only when it starts to go up, do we service it and take it back here. So because our servicing rate was, our servicing interval was so short, we were constantly in this in this phase of um, of maintenance induced failure mechanisms. And as soon as we hit that thousand kilometer mark, we go back to the start, reservice it, reintroduce all the same failure mechanisms, and never get out of that out of that phase, out of that stage. Well, we, all we needed to do was to wait longer, wait for those maintenance induced failure mechanisms to be uh, worked out of the system, and then wait till we started to see started to anticipate our wear out failure mechanisms to kick in. So what this chart doesn't show is the back end of the bathtub curve where those, those wear out failure mechanisms make our failure rate or hazard rate increased. The reason why it's not here is because we were servicing these vehicles so often, the data never got that high. So in this case, we're able to do less preventive maintenance and increase reliability. And in fact, every application where I've done this analysis with military, industrial, plant, we've shown that the, manuf the, the manufacturer recommended servicing, servicing, servicing intervals almost certainly increasing the probability of failure. And it makes sense because when you're manufacturing a product, you don't know how it's going to be used. You don't know, um, you don't know how it's going to perform, even if it's used in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in the correct way. So you're always naturally conservative. You always want to say, let's do more preventive maintenance so these failures we hope will never happen, definitely don't happen, but it's counterintuitive the, the, the effect it has on reliability. If you do it too much, you introduce too many failures. And hopefully that explains that. And again, if that, I can't talk about it for too much longer than the time, but if you think that's a subject of another webinar, please let us know and we'll also make that happen. So let's move back on to the next step. But what do we do with this knowledge we have now? What is it? We know what a PDF is, we know what a CDF is, we know what a reliability function is, the hazard rate function is. What do we do with all this stuff? What's the next step? Now we know what these things do. We know how to use our CDF curve to work out servicing intervals, work out warranty periods, so on and so forth. What is the next step? Next step is knowing which one to use. And there's, as one of our attendees suggested, there's a bunch of different options out there. Here are some examples here. We obviously don't have time to go through these today. And each, each one is, has different applications um, for different different scenarios. And you can actually create your own. And again, that's well and truly outside of today's, the scope of today's lesson. But hopefully the, the main point from today is, is understanding what a PDF is, a CDF is, a reliability function, those measures of central tendency, the mean, median and mode, how we don't want to use the mean for things like uh, warranty reliability or servicing intervals, and what the hazard rate curve can tell us. And I can see one last question is, what is the unit of hazard rate? The hazard rate unit is failures per hour or failures per year or failures per unit usage duration. So that is our, that, that is a unit of our hazard rate. 
The reason why I love the hazard rate is because it's the first step for me in understanding why that thing is failing. If it's decreasing, I know we need to look at the, the manufacturing process. If it's increasing, we know something's wearing out. So this, it just automatically starts focusing us on what it is we need to do to make reliability better. So on that note, understanding that a lot of really good questions have been asked and we're right on time now. Are there any further questions? I'll be hanging around to, uh, to answer them if they need to come up. And I uh, also understand everyone has a life they need to get back to as well. But uh, once uh, before people spear off, hey, thank you very much for attending today's webinar. We love feedback at Ascender Reliability. If there's a topic you want us to cover, please let us know. If there's something I could have done better today, please let me know. We're always trying to improve these webinars, improve these lessons, improve the content. So please get please get back to us with uh, with uh, suggestions and feedback. We really value it. And uh, if you haven't checked out AscenderReliability.com more broadly, I guess you have because you're here. But don't forget, there's a ton of other resources there as well, which includes web, uh, other webinars, podcasts, books, articles, you name it. Um, no worries. If, uh, if there are any questions, I'll, I'll answer them. But uh, thank you for thank you all for attending, and thanks for the uh, kind words just then. Just then, sorry, just now. Thank you. Thank you for your feedback. I'm glad that you found it informative. So audience questions, how to evaluate, evaluate reliability for welded joints? Um, uh, that obviously is a, is a presentation its own right. Could I suggest that uh, you contact me directly if you want to, more than happy to discuss, discuss, uh, discuss that further after this. Um, there's a few things you need to concern yourself with welded joints. Um, but yeah, please send an email to me and let's start a conversation and see if we can, uh, if we can make a, to, to help you out. Again, thank you for your kind words. Audience question, will condition-based preventive maintenance improve reliability? How to correlate this in your slide of car example? So yes, um, so just to be clear, some people make a key distinction between condition-based maintenance and preventive, pre preventive maintenance. Now, condition-based maintenance is also preventive in terms of we're trying to stop failures from occurring, but just to get the, the wording right just for the industry we tend to use condition-based maintenance where we look for a trigger to do maintenance and preventive maintenance where we, we wait for an interval to occur but i understand what you're trying to say so condition-based maintenance means we wait for that trigger which means we need to know um, the failure mechanism and we need to know uh, the state of that component so condition-based maintenance is really really good if you do know the dominant failure mechanisms and if you have some way to measure the rate at which uh, the, the damage is accumulating on that component. So if you can, do it. But there's a couple of reasons why you can't. Firstly is cost, sensors aren't cheap. Secondly is the, the dominant failure mechanism might not be observable at all. You might not have an under, might not be able to look into, um, uh, be able to easily inspect a strut or something which is in the heart of a machine. So you just have to go back to intervals, which is okay. So uh, as a rule, condition-based maintenance where you, where you maximise the, the, the useful life of your product, your component, your subsystem or your system 
yes, it should improve reliability, but just understand that there are some certain scenarios where it won't work or it won't be uh, feasible or cost-effective. In the, in, the, uh, in the servicing for our Land Rover uh, example, often our servicing intervals dealt with things like lubricants being changed and things like that. So we could have looked at having uh, a, a sensor to look at the number of particles in oils and lubricants and, and, and work out if, uh, uh, if it work out thresholds, which would then invoke preventive maintenance, sorry, condition-based maintenance being triggered. And the other good thing about that is if there is some sort of premature failure in a bearing, the, the things, the, the metal shavings will, will potentially give us some warning that we can change the bearing without having, before it turns into a much more catastrophic failure. Uh, so yes, Hopefully that's a, that sort of answers your question. Again, if there's any other, any other, if I need to discuss that any further, please feel free to contact me directly. And uh, yes, yeah, sorry, there's my email address there. Thank you, Fred. Um, and again, yeah, I'd like to reiterate that uh, thanks for attending. Some really good questions, making me earn my money. Um, looking forward to talking soon or talking next time, sorry.